right, Romans chapter 9 once again this morning. We're in this section that deals with what Paul has to say about God's promises to the nation of Israel. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, uh, Paul deals with this subject. There are three chapters that are somewhat self-contained. I mentioned a couple weeks ago when we were just getting into this section that some have pointed out that you could really go from the end of chapter 8 into chapter 12 without really even thinking that you missed a beat Um, because it flows very well from all that Paul presented in the first eight chapters into the practical side of, of how we live as believers in chapter 12. But even though these chapters are somewhat self-contained, they also build upon what Paul had been discussing in those first eight chapters as well. Um, We're dealing with the plans of God, and we're dealing with His sovereignty when it comes to how He is dealing with His people. And under the title of His people, um, that would be both in the sense of the church and of the nation of Israel. We live today in what's commonly known as the church age. Uh, For all intents and purposes, when you look back at Israel's role over the last 2,000 years, it looks as if, and some have made the claim, that God is finished with dealing with the nation of Israel. Some believe that he has changed his plan and is now focused on the church instead of Israel. They make the case that the church has replaced Israel. And that's what replacement theology or supersessionism, if you've heard those terms, that's what that's dealing with. But in these chapters, we see that that's not the case at all. And that's what Paul is detailing for us here. These chapters answer the question for us about the current condition of Israel. How the church finds itself in the inner workings of God's plan for that nation, especially as it relates to the gospel, God's plan of salvation. How does this all fit together? In the first eight chapters, once again, Paul showed us that detailed, very thorough explanation of God's plan of salvation, taking us from our depraved condition through God's work of justification in saving the sinner, then through the sanctification process of what happens to the one saved and what we go through while we are still on, here on earth. And finally then, even showing the blessed hope that we have uh, by the one who uh, God has taken through this process, or of the one that God has taken through this process, the glory that awaits us all as his children. We stand in that hope of what is to come. Salvation is a process. It's accomplished at a point in time, at a point of time that we believe and are justified. We are saved at that point. When it comes to our faith in the saving work of Christ, that's when we're justified, transferred from the realm of death, sin and death, to the realm of righteousness. But that point in time starts the process of perfecting us that will continue throughout our lives. And then we live a certain way and we mature and we grow and are sanctified. So this picture of salvation, this process, is really the ongoing work of God in us. This is the act of God to bring about our salvation and to bring us to maturity and ultimately when we will be with him in glory. This is God's work from start to finish. And we saw the start and the finish of God's work. Paul packaged it very neatly in chapter 8, verses 29 to 30, when he said, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the entire process of salvation that God works in us from beginning to end. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. This is the unbreakable chain of events that happens to save someone. And all through this, this is not our work. But it's the work of God to bring about salvation in the individual. From foreknowledge all the way to glorification, throughout that process, God does not lose a single person. Now, this all has to do with the sovereignty of God. We're talking about the sovereignty of God. 
When it comes to God's plan for salvation, He has sovereignly determined who it is who will belong to Him. And that's what we were really starting to look at in our last study. Paul was speaking of this in relationship to, or in relation to, the nation of Israel. Because God sovereignly, His God's sovereignty is instrumental in Him making His point about the current condition of that nation of Israel. Israel will be saved. But it is not every physical Jew that is saved when we talk about Israel. Therefore, Israel is not comprised of every single physical Jew. Just like it was not every son of Abraham that was the child of promise, right? We talked about Abraham and his children. He had many children, but it was only Isaac that God's choice went through. And it was not both of Isaac's twin sons that were chosen. It was Jacob and not Esau that God chose for that purpose as well. So it came down through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the point that Paul was making was that God sovereignly chose who would be saved. And it was not based on what any of them did. It was based on God's choice alone. It was his good pleasure to determine that. Look at verse 11 of chapter 9 with me, which we looked at last time. He said, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. This was a decision based upon God's purpose, his good pleasure, his choice. This is true for the individuals in salvation, and it is true for God's choice when it comes to his own nation as well. His nation is the nation of Israel. God never said that everyone who was a physical descendant of Abraham would be saved. That's obvious in the choice that he made in both of those two instances. So now, as it comes to Jews living in Paul's day, and even in our day, being a physical descendant of Abraham is not enough. It's not all that there is to being a part of God's chosen nation. Even being the physical descendant of Jacob, where Israel, as his name was changed to in Genesis 32, is not enough. And that was evident back in verse 6, where he said, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Not every physical descendant of Jacob, who was Israel, is a true Jew truly belongs to God as his child. Why? Because it's a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of your physical, being a physical descendant, it's, it comes down to being a matter of the heart. Salvation has always been a matter of the heart, of faith. Not based on who you are or what you've done. This is what Jesus told the Jews in John chapter 8, which we looked at in our last study. It's what Paul was talking about back in Romans chapter 2. It's also what he made clear in chapter 4, where he talked about salvation coming only by grace through faith, not by works of any kind. Those of the nation of Israel that truly belong to him are not his because they are Jews. No, they are true Jews because they belong to him. And that's what Paul is trying to get across here, that out of all of Israel, it's the ones that he has chosen for himself that are the true nation of Israel. It's those that he has elected to salvation. This is God's sovereign plan and works within his sovereignty. Now, I was asked the question last week after our study, what does this have to do with us? And it was a question that was asked within the context of, we have these three chapters here that deal with Israel. And the church is not Israel, right? I've made that point over and over again, stressed that over and over again. We're talking about how God sovereignly chose Israel as a nation, how some physical descendants within that nation are chosen and how some are not chosen. What is it exactly that we are supposed to take from this section that Paul's presenting here? How does a discussion on Israel, and to put it bluntly, affect me and affect you sitting here today in the local church in Gretna, Nebraska? And I think that's a fair question. 
Because as we've stated, we're not Israel. And the reason I bring this up is because I think that if one person asks me that question, there's probably more than one person here that has at least thought of that in their head as well. So I'll just say first and foremost, and this is, this is just the overriding, view, or, uh, overriding reason, first and foremost, we study this because it's in God's Word, right? And I know that that wasn't in doubt in the person's mind when they were asking that, but that is the number one reason, right? We've come to chapter 9, 10, and 11, and this is what's next in the book of Romans, so we're not going to ignore it. We're going to sit here and do our due diligence and study through it, right? But besides that, when it comes to how God is dealing with the nation of Israel, we're going to see some fundamental things here that are relevant in any situation, not just for them. Today, in our study today, we're going to continue to talk about God's sovereignty. We're going to see that in action. And God is sovereign. And that's important for us to understand, no matter who we are. Throughout this section, throughout these chapters, we're going to talk about the importance of God fulfilling his promises. And those are, that's important whether or not he's making promises to Israel or he's making promises to, to us or to anyone. We're going to see the idea in these chapters of man's responsibility and how that works in relationship to the sovereignty of God. When we get to chapter 11, we're going to see how we as Gentiles have been included in God's plan. Even within the context of God's plans for Israel, we have been grafted into the vine, Paul, we use that terminology there, to talk about. There are blessings that have come to us out of the promises that were given to them. So this is part of why I gave you homework a couple weeks ago when we started out studying these chapters to make sure you read through the three chapters throughout the week, at least once throughout the week, just so that you get an understanding of where all this is going. And we'll make our way through all these things, and I'll get to every section in these chapters, but this is definitely a section where I don't want us to lose sight of the forest because of the trees, right? Don't get bogged down on any one area without keeping in mind the entire overall picture. So bear with me while we work through this stuff. This is all good stuff. This is all important stuff, and it's all stuff that is critical in God's eternal plans for both the nation of Israel and for the church. In these chapters, we get to see a lot of the behind-the-scenes workings of God as he completes his plan for the redemption of mankind, for redemption of people. So in our last study, we were talking about election. Whenever we look at the doctrine of salvation, specifically when it relates to election, we need to keep in mind God's sovereignty. Because election, simply put, is choice. It's God's choice. And God is the one who is doing the choosing. Through God's sovereign will, he has chosen some for salvation. But that also means that there's some that he hasn't chosen. So two questions come to mind when we start to deal with these subjects. First question being, how can God choose to save some but not choose to save others? Isn't that unjust for him to do that? Second question, how can man be responsible for his sin when God hasn't chosen him for salvation? Now, how do I know that these are two questions that come up? Because in the next 11 verses, these are the two questions that Paul addresses here for us in Romans. And this week, we're going to get to one of those questions, but we won't get to the other one this week. Now, we left off last time in verse 13 of Romans 9, where he said, Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob was loved by God. He says he hated Esau. Of the two totally indistinct sons of Isaac and Rebekah, God sovereignly chose Jacob and loved him, but Esau he hadn't chosen. It says he hated him. And we talked about how it is totally within God's character to hate not only the sin, but also the source of the sin. He hates the sinner as well. And we looked at several passages about that. Psalm 5.5, five, Psalm 11.5, Proverbs 6, 16-19, Malachi 2.16. The manifestation of God's hatred towards the sinner is in his wrath, in his condemnation towards them. 
that he always or that he shows to all those who reject him, all those who fail to accept his salvation, his gospel. Now, in talking about that, there's one thing that we need to keep in mind. In fact, it's something that we need to keep in mind all through our passage today. We are not dealing with innocent humanity here. We're dealing with fallen, depraved, sinful enemies of God. They are haters of God. They obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Not one of them is righteous or seeks to do good. Not even one. The choices that God makes in election isn't from among the innocent or even the neutral. But it's from among the fallen. It's from among the wicked. This is the pool that we belong to, even as believers, prior to our salvation, prior to the point in time where we responded to the gospel in faith, we had every part in this as well. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us that we were dead in our sins, that we walked according to the course of this world and according to Satan's power. We were children of wrath, even as the rest, Paul said there. Everyone in the world starts out in this group, and then God, in His sovereignty, graciously, mercifully, changes the hearts of some. This is a very humbling doctrine that people have a hard time grasping, which is oftentimes why people try to explain it or change it. We can't really mean that. But it does mean that. There wasn't anything of value in us. There wasn't any reason that we provided for God to choose us. I brought nothing to the table. You brought nothing to the table. It was all according to his sovereign purpose. It was according to his sovereign plan. Quite frankly, when talking about God knowing the hearts of all men, we sometimes say, well, God knows what people are going to do. God knows the hearts of everyone when he knows the fact that we are all sinners down to the very last one of us, the question really isn't, why doesn't he save everyone? But the question really is, why does he save any of us? Why would he do that? And that's what Paul starts to address as we come to verse 14. Verse 14 says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? So as Paul has done throughout the letter, he starts with his presumed questions, right? We've seen this several times already in our study. He, he makes a point, and then he brings up questions that he knows people would have. Does God acting in this way mean that he's unjust? Isn't that an unjust? And to start off here, it's important to realize that God, acting through the Apostle Paul, is showing his awareness of the fact that this doctrine elicits this type of questions among us. God knows this is hard for us to understand, and he inspired Paul to ask this question. He realizes that this is hard to get. In fact, this is the response that verse 13 is supposed to to raise when he says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Wait a minute, God. That's not right. That just doesn't seem right to me. You can't say that. That's exactly why this is raised here. The question that comes in light of verse 13 is anticipated and it will be answered. What's the answer? Is God unjust in doing this? Is this an unjust way for him to act? May it never be. And this is our familiar phrase once again. Meganointo, God forbid, absolutely not. May it never be. The very concept of God being unjust is totally outside the realm of possibility. So now in the next four verses, he's going to lay this out for us. Paul will show why it's impossible. And he's going to use two passages from the Old Testament to prove his point that God is free to make his own decisions based solely on his choice and then elaborate on them. He's going to show that this process of God's choosing is consistent with how he has acted in the past. And quite honestly... Seeing how God has acted in the past ought to be a good enough reason. Good enough standard for us to accept as far as whether or not it's just. When you establish how God has acted throughout human history, how he has dealt with people in the past, you have established what is just, period. 
Because God is the standard of perfect justice. People today look at election and say, well, in my view, that's just not right. It's just not just. Really? By what standard do you make that determination? By what standard of, or measure do you make that claim? Is it by man's standard? By the rules that fallen man has come up to say what is just and what isn't? That's not a perfect system. That's not a system that God's actions are bound to. God is bound to his own actions, to his own system. So now what do we need to see to find out whether or not this is a just system? We need to see what God's system is. We need to see how he works. And in the following verses, here's how God has acted in the past. This shows what God's measure of justice is, and it's based on his own character and his own actions. He says in verse 15, For he says to Moses, so he's going to bring up an example of Moses here. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He quotes here from Exodus 33, 19. This is a passage where God had revealed to Moses that he had chosen Israel. He had revealed to Moses that he had specifically chosen Moses to lead Israel. Right? That was God's choice. God says that he has known Moses. And remember, we looked several weeks ago about knowing back in the Old Testament. It means more than just, I knew something about you. It means that I specifically chose you. He has known Moses. Moses has found favor with him. So Moses requests that God reveal his glory to him in that passage. And God puts Moses on the cleft of the rock and reveals his back to him. Not his face, but just his back to show him his glory. And in the context of all that, it's when God declares, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's a statement declaring God's sovereign choice over the nation. In that passage, Moses has questions about God's choice of the nation of Israel. And if you know, remember the history of Moses and the Israelites and the grumbling and all the it's not hard to see why Moses would have questions as far as why did we choose them? Why, why were we chosen? Moses had good reason to question the choice of Israel. What made them better suited than any other nation? They certainly didn't act special at times. Even for Moses' his own part, he wasn't perfect either. He had questions on why am I the one here? Why am I leading them? Why, why did you cho- choose me? He had his own flaws. No one knew his own flaws better than Moses himself. From a human standpoint, there was no compelling reason for God to choose either one of them. So what was the reason? God has mercy on on whomever he has mercy and compassion on whomever he has compassion. In other words, it was his own sovereign choice. Now, does this mean... Some would say, well, maybe that just means that, well, God had some, there was an inkling of something that Moses just wasn't aware of. Maybe, maybe Moses just couldn't see it. Does it mean that maybe he had some inherent quality of goodness that, that God could see, but Moses just didn't recognize? No, that's not what it means. In fact, God's statement shows that Moses was correct in his assessment. Now, why do I say that? Because if Moses was good in some way that he couldn't see... If an Israel was good in some way that Moses couldn't see, if they had some measure of righteousness that that God recognized as worthy of his own standard, then neither one of them would have needed God's mercy or his compassion. Mercy, by its very definition, is something given to someone who does not deserve it. If they deserved it, it's not really mercy. Say an innocent man gets thrown into prison, right? Didn't commit the crime. Gets thrown into prison. He's in jail for a while. The mistake is discovered, and they release him. They find out it was someone else. They release that man from prison. Have they shown that man mercy? No. That's not mercy for that man. They're fixing an error. That man was innocent. He didn't deserve to have been put in jail in the first place. He was innocent. Mercy is when someone is pardoned for their crime. Maybe they're let out early. Maybe their sentence is just uh, done away with. 
when by all accounts they should be serving that sentence. That's mercy. If you've been reading through the chapters over the last few weeks, you've probably noticed that mercy comes up as a theme here. It's a very important concept within these chapters. Paul talks about it here in chapter 9 when talking about God's sovereignty. It will come up again in chapter 11 when he talks about God's mercy towards both Jews and Gentiles. The point here is that God has chosen to be merciful to those who don't deserve it. He has chosen to be merciful to some, and that's the sovereignty of God's mercy. Keep in mind, God is not obligated to show mercy to anyone. Once again, we're talking about sinful humanity. When talking about God being merciful, His mercy is shown or revealed to sinners, to those who don't deserve it, because those are the ones who, if they're going to be saved, would need mercy. So this is God's choice among sinners, not neutral humanity, but among sinners. We need to get that fixed in our minds. This is not neutral humanity. There's no such thing. Within the context of the quote that he's using here, out of those sinners, God chose Israel. Out of those sinners, he chose Moses to lead Israel. The emphasis is on what God decides. And that's what we see in verse 16. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And here Paul reiterates what he said back in verse 11. This is God's choice, and it's not dependent upon man in any way. It's not dependent upon the one that he's showing this mercy to. God's election doesn't depend on the man who wills, and that's the man's decisions, the man's desires. It's not the one who wants this or desires anything. Or the man who runs, which is simply talking about the man's actions, the things that he does. So it's not dependent upon what he wants or what he does. It's totally dependent upon God's choice. It's not dependent upon man in any way, on what man wants or what man does. And the Old Testament substantiates the fact that God sovereignly chooses. Even Moses got this answer. It's my choice. I have mercy and compassion on whom I choose. That is what this passage is showing. The fact that Paul is teaching that God chooses some isn't anything new. It's consistent with how he has always acted. So that's the first example. Now back in, in verse 17, we have the second quote that Paul uses to back up his may it never be expression. In verse 14, this one is quoted from Exodus 9:16 after the sixth plague of Egypt boils that covered the Egyptians from head to toe. Moses goes before Pharaoh and throws soot in the air at this point in time, and it covers man and beast with painful boils. Even Pharaoh's own magicians, if you remember the account, Moses would be there and Pharaoh would bring in his magicians, but even at this point in time, even Pharaoh's own magicians could not come and stand before him because of the boils that were on their body. They were too painful. They couldn't even come in. But Moses comes before Pharaoh, and, Pharaoh and, and, and Paul reiterates part of what he tells him here in verse 17. It says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. This is quite a statement of the power and the sovereignty of God. Here's Pharaoh, leader of the mighty nation of Egypt. Not a small nation. One of the mightiest nations on earth at the time. And God tells him that he is the one who has raised up Pharaoh to lead this nation. It wasn't his birth. It wasn't his family privilege. Not even his blood, sweat, and tears that got him where he was. It was the Almighty God who established him as the ruler of Egypt. For what purpose? So that his own will might be accomplished. So that his own power might be demonstrated in this man. That's why God put this man in charge of Egypt. Turn with me over to the book of Daniel. I want to see another example of this. Daniel chapter 4.
Another very clear example where God is actually directly telling an important leader, Nebuchadnezzar, this same information. This, This is the chapter where King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He dreams of a tree that covers the earth, where all the birds live in its branches, all the animals live underneath it, and then the order is given to come and chop down this tree, to cut off its branches, and it ends up just leaving a stump. But this wasn't an ordinary dream, right? It was a dream given to the king of Babylon by God, because the king of Babylon had gotten, to use an old phrase, too big for his britches, if anyone remembers that phrase. Nebuchadnezzar had gotten a bit too pompous and arrogant about what he considered to be his kingdom. And God was telling him that he was going to take him down a notch. Daniel comes in to interpret this dream for him. And in part of that interpretation, look at verse 17 of Daniel chapter 4. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is a purpose statement here. In order that the living may know. This is why this is going on. Nebuchadnezzar is told why this is going to happen to him. And then a year later, what happens? He gets this, Daniel interprets it for him. A year later, Nebuchadnezzar's out on his balcony or his roof. He's looking at his great kingdom. And he boasts over, look at Babylon, how, you know, my wonderful kingdom, all that I've done. And boom, God humbles him by making him insane and makes him crawl around on the ground and eat grass and be on all fours for seven years. Takes him down a notch, just like he promised. Now, at the end of that time, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar finally gets it. Look down at verse 34 of Daniel 4. Says, but at the end of that period, after those seven years, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? So you see what's going on here. What God shows through Nebuchadnezzar, leader of Babylon at the time. God is sovereignly in control of it all. He is above and beyond question. And he has the right to do with his creation whatever he pleases. And he raises up sinful men to lead nations of the world to accomplish his own purposes. He raised up Pharaoh to show his might and his power. He raised up Nebuchadnezzar. He raises them all up. God is the one that does that. God raises up these men and God takes them down again. And there is no one who rules on earth anywhere that God has not sovereignly placed there. That's the lesson that God taught to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar seemed to have learned it. There's question as far as whether Nebuchadnezzar was a believer at the end of his life. I don't know. When we get to heaven, we'll find out. It's the lesson that God was showing through Pharaoh, but Pharaoh never really learned the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar did. And we'll talk about that in a second. But come back to Romans chapter 9. The focus is on God's power and on God's name. All that happened to Pharaoh in Egypt was a demonstration of the power and the glory of God. You have to ask yourself, was it an effective demonstration? What happened to Egypt in those, those plagues? Was it a lasting one? You ever seen the movie The Ten Commandments? Everybody know that movie? They make movies about what happened to Pharaoh, right? There are songs about what happened to Pharaoh. We're reading here about the power of God in the plagues of Egypt. This was an event that for thousands of years has reminded people everywhere of the power of God and the glory of God. You can ask the question, what was the name of this pharaoh? Eh, People think it's Ramses II, but we don't really know for sure. It was Ewell Brenner in the movie, right? That's, That's all we really know. But who cares? 
Who cares which Pharaoh this was? That's not really important. What's important is God is the one who's important in this story, not Pharaoh. God raised him up for his purpose. This is the only reason that we know about this guy Pharaoh at all. So what does this have to do with God's sovereignty and election? In proving that he's not unjust. Remember, that's our leading question. That's what got us here. Right? Is God unjust? No, he's not. Well, what have we seen? We've seen two examples now. We've seen an example of God showing mercy to one based on his own desires, Moses. And we've seen an example of God raising up another one to show his own power and might throughout the whole world, Pharaoh. We've got God's sovereign choice of two men, but for two completely different purposes. One man to lead God's people, one man to demonstrate God's power to the whole world. But even more importantly, it was one man who was saved, and it was one man who was not. So in verse 18, now Paul elaborates and concludes this first question. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And here's another one of those verses that gives us pause that we don't like to deal with at times. We thought verse 13 was hard enough. He hates Esau. But now we have it again, right? The first part of the verse we don't have an issue with. He has mercy on whom he desires. We like that. That's what he was talking about in verses 15 and 16. God's choice in determining who amongst undeserving sinners will receive his mercy. But now we go a step further. And now it's also his choice in whom he hardens, it says. Verse 13, again, told us he hates Esau. Now in verse 18, he hardens whom he desires. Paul just keeps, us, keeps getting us in deeper and deeper here. How much easier would this passage be if he had just stopped it? Well, Jacob I loved, and I have mercy on whom I desire. But he doesn't do that. So we need to make sure we understand this, just like we did in verse 13. Just as it's his sovereign choice to show mercy, it's also true that he sovereignly chooses to harden. Both are true. And note the cause of both. His desires. He shows mercy based on his desires. He hardens based on his desires. Now some try to soften what Paul is saying here, right? He's talking about, obviously talking about Pharaoh here because he looks back at the account in Exodus where Moses is dealing with Pharaoh. And throughout those chapters that talk about the plagues and Moses coming in time after time to talk with Pharaoh, it talks both about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, but it also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And people therefore draw the conclusion that, well, God only hardened Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh first hardened his own heart. Well, while it's true that it does make mention of Pharaoh hardening his own heart back in Exodus, we have to understand that's not the reason that Paul gives here in Romans 9. Both mercy and hardening are here said to be caused by the desire of God. We need to keep in mind the overall point that Paul is making here. The sovereign choices of God are not based on anything other than God's desires. Now we need to be careful that we also don't go and draw the wrong conclusions Another way to take it too far the other way. Some would say, well, so God chose for Pharaoh to be a sinner. God sovereignly determined that Pharaoh would be this sinner, so he's making him sin. Well, we must remember that hardening isn't what makes Pharaoh a sinner. It's not accurate to say that God's hardening of Pharaoh is what caused him to sin in the first place. Pharaoh, already being a sinner, was hardened by God. Keep in mind, both actions we see in verse 18 are actions upon the sinner, the fallen. It's fallen humanity who is either shown mercy by God or who is hardened by God. So in Exodus, when it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, that's still a result of God's sovereign action upon him. This concept is not new here in this chapter of Romans. We've actually seen this before back in chapter 1. Turn back to chapter 1 with me for a minute. It's stated a different way there. But it's really the same sovereign action of God. In Romans 1, Paul's talking about the fallen condition of man, right? That's where this all started. 
talking about fallen man. And look at verse 18, which starts the whole section. We should be very familiar with this verse by now. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He started off this section talking about God's wrath being revealed against ungodliness, against the vile and wicked mass of humanity. This is God's response to the sinners, the unrighteous. And we saw something of their character throughout this chapter. In fact, that's what the whole chapter was about. Look down at verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And we've already talked about those who have rejected God, right? That's what it's talking about here. And then turn to the creation to be their God. And there are consequences. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Look down at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Look down at verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Remember what was happening here? This wasn't God causing them to sin. This is God giving sinful man over to the course of action that he has already taken upon himself. Allowing them to fall deeper and deeper into sin's control. Now, what does it mean that they're controlled by sin when we talk about sin's control? It means that they are controlled by their own desires, their own lusts. So what we have here is God allowing them to fall deeper and deeper into what they selfishly want anyway. He's not making them do what they don't want to do. Rather, he's clearing the way for them to continue down the road that they have already chosen, taken upon themselves. Consider the example of Moses and Pharaoh again. God reached out to the sinful man, Moses, and caused him to do what he did not want to do. And that was believe in God. God chose him to do that. That's what sinful man doesn't want to do. Sinful man doesn't want to believe in God. So if you talk about making somebody do what they don't want to do, that's that aspect of it. Choosing the sinner to be saved takes them from what they didn't want into what God wants them to be. Pharaoh, on the other hand, did not want to believe in God, and God did not make him believe. The result was that Pharaoh was hardened against God and against his word. Right? Remember the hardening of Pharaoh that it talks about in Exodus. When it says that he hardens his heart, it's, it's, it talks about that in response to Moses coming before him and telling him God's commands, let my people go. God is telling Pharaoh to let his people go. And Pharaoh shuts that out. He refuses to obey the command of God. When approached with the truth of God, a man will have one of two reactions. Anyone will have one of two reactions. Either believe it or reject it and become further hardened against God. But there will always be a response to the word of God. God's word is always responded to. Isaiah 55.11 says, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Whenever anyone hears God's word, there is a reaction to it. It never returns to God empty. It never fails to accomplish what he desires for it to accomplish. And thus a person is either going to be edified by it, or they're going to be hardened by it. Look with me over the book of 2 Corinthians. Let's see what Paul, Paul actually addresses the same thing there. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Look down at verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 2. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. So here, Paul's referring to the sweet aroma of, of the knowledge of God that is manifest through His children, those that know and keep His Word. We share His Word, right? The Word of God goes to the world 
through us. It goes on in verse 15, For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So here we stand as those who manifest this sweet aroma of God's knowledge. It's our fragrance. The truth of God comes forth through us, His children, as we proclaim the Word of God and it goes forth both to those who are saved and to those who are perishing, right? With the analogy of the aroma, it's both can smell us, right? Both can smell the Word of God on us. It's that aroma. What's the result? Verse 16. To the one, an aroma from death to death, and to the other, an aroma from life to life. Whenever God's Word is given off, shared, preached, manifested in some way, it accomplishes one of two things. It brings life to the saved, encourages and edifies. But to the unsaved, it's a hardening. It brings them farther away from life, brings them closer to death. That's the hardening of the sinner. Whenever we share God's Word with someone, especially when we come to the gospel. Right? It could be any part of God's Word, but they don't understand God's Word because they don't have the Holy Spirit to reveal it to them. But when we share the Gospel with them, God is either going to use that to bring them closer to Him, or it's going to drive them further away. We have no say, and there's no indication of which, will be, which it will be, but our responsibility to share it doesn't change. That's still our job. We can't let that scare us off and say, oh well, If they're going to reject it even further, then maybe I shouldn't share it. No, that's not what the response should be. You realize that one of those two things is going on. God is is either going to work upon that life in his mercy, or he's going to work upon that life in his hardening. That's not for us to decide. Is that harsh? Not really. Again, because of whom God is dealing with. If there was a single person who would choose of their own free will to love God, who would accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they would never be turned away by God. And we need to keep in mind that there isn't one person who would ever make that decision. We saw that back in chapter 3 of Romans, verses 11 and 12. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. This is the condition of mankind. This is the condition that you were in. This is the condition that I was in. If God hadn't reached out on his own initiative and shown us mercy that we not only didn't deserve, but we didn't even want, then we would be perfectly content to continue rejecting him and continuing in our own lost sinful condition. That's the way most of the world is today. If you look around in the world, and the world revels in their sin, and they aren't hating it, right? We would love it if we looked around at the world and and we saw everyone that's engaged in sin and we said, oh, they must be miserable. Oh, they're just miserable in their sin. They're not, right? They celebrate it. They aren't depressed and downtrodden over their sinfulness, over their animosity with God. They celebrate it. And God isn't obligated to change their path. He's not. If everyone who ever lived, lived their entire lives in sin, died in their sins, and were condemned to hell for all eternity, that would be just. God would be totally just in sending everyone to hell. Because that's what every single person deserves. I mentioned last week about the angels. That's exactly what's going on with the angels. There is no salvation provided for angels. Those angels that fall They're condemned. There's no salvation for them, and God provides no salvation for fallen angels. But he has mercifully and graciously provided it for mankind. When we talk about God being merciful and reaching out and taking just a few and saying, these I will save for myself, but those I will allow to continue in their sin and fall farther and farther away from me, why is the first reaction that people have, how unfair is that? How unjust for him to do that. When in reality, the more reasonable choice would be for him to harden us all. 
to allow us all to remain lost in our sins, rejecting him, because that is the condition from which we came. And the condition with which we were quite content. That's what we wanted. This is God's sovereignty in action. Just like Paul has been doing throughout the book, we're seeing the basics here, the nuts and bolts first. But he's going to use these concepts to build his arguments in the next few chapters. How does this relate to Israel and their current condition? Well, we'll get there. But turn with me over to chapter 11 just for a second. We'll look at one verse here. just want you to note that this isn't the only time we see hardening. He says in verse 25 of Romans 11, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This hardening of God is being applied to Israel right now. A partial hardening. There's hardening going on right now in his chosen nation. They are being given over to their sins, and this will continue until the end of the church age, when the fullness of the ten Gentiles comes in, and God will turn his attention back to them as a nation. These are not things that are easy to accept or to understand. There are a lot of questions that this topic brings up, but keep in mind the chasm that exists between God and man isn't a chasm that God created. It was created by man because of his sin, because of our sins, yours and mine. It's a chasm that man cannot cross by himself. God stands on his side of the chasm and desires that all would be saved, desires that the chasm hadn't even been created in the first place. He stands and offers the free gift of salvation to anyone who would be willing to cross that chasm by believing in the gospel message. That's why the gospel exists But the sad reality is no one is going to cross unless God, in his mercy, brings them across the chasm. For some he will, for the rest he won't. But that's not his fault, that's man's fault. I don't know why he chooses some and not others. I wish I did. I wish the scripture clearly laid it out and said, this is it. But this is what we get. It's God's purpose. And I don't completely understand God's purpose. You don't completely understand God's purpose. But this is how he's chosen to do it. But the one thing that's relevant for us is that he has offered his free gift to the world. And it's our responsibility to be sharing the good news of that gift to everyone. That's the part that we play in God's sovereign plan. Let's close in a word of prayer.